What's up, everyone? Welcome back to The Planet Today. Today is Monday, April 18th, 2022. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here by myself today because we're about to air my interview with Brian Alderman of Ivy Co. and Nate Truitt of the American Forest Foundation. Before we do that, today's episode is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Welcome to The Planet Today, where we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way Monday and Friday. And with that, we're going to get right into the interview. Today on TPT, we are joined by Brian Alderman and Nate Truitt. Brian is the founder and CEO of Ivy Co., a financial technology company that aims to increase engagement with the climate crisis and raise money to protect our American forests and fund environmental nonprofits. Nate is the Senior Vice President of Business Development at the American Forest Foundation, which aims for meaningful conservation impact through the empowerment of family forest owners. Their teams, along with many other partners, most notably the Nature Conservancy, have worked to put together the Family Forest Carbon Program, which helps family forest owners earn income from growing their forests and using sustainable forestry practices. Brian Alderman, Nate Truitt, welcome to the planet today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So I want to kind of take this back a bit and just kind of ask you both, what got you each first interested in environmentalism and sustainability as a whole? So at least on my part, uh, I love difficult, intractable intractable problems um, like those we work on in the sustainability and climate space every day. They've always interested me. That's how I wound up in financial technology space in the first place and now in the climate fintech world because if fintech wasn't hard enough, let's combine it with uh, climate. But it is, as I'm sure we'll get into, uh, a pretty good fit together. As for me, I uh, grew up playing around on Western rivers. Um, both of my uh, parents were whitewater river instructors with Outward Bound. If you've ever heard of that, that's an environmental education program. So cool. my whole childhood was a lot of outdoor adventures. And then um, I actually went and I worked internationally for a long period of time. And there I experienced um, really the power of different cultural perceptions and how communities um, based kind of on the stories they tell themselves, how they interact with themselves and with each other differently. And when I eventually moved back full time to the United States, uh, resource conservation was an area where both of those interests kind of coincided because in, in working with natural resources in the U.S., particularly with families, you're, you're dealing with their culture, their legacy, 
their own attitudes toward their land. But of course, you're also dealing with the the bio, biophysical and natural realities of the land itself and how those two things interact, uh, which is a really, really interesting thing to work on every day. Gotcha. Brian, we can start with you again. How, how did you take your initial interest in that and turn it into what you're doing now? So I read the Carbon Bubble Report. This goes back a little while, circa 2011, 2012, um, and was stunned at the scale of the potentially stranded assets sitting in our financial system and got to turn that over in my brain for a while and how those financial assumptions that are baked in a few levels down the chain start impacting the prices that we pay for things every day and the ways that we invest our retirement savings, for instance. And it led me to focusing on two data points, one being that 70% of the U.S. economy is driven by consumer spending. It's a huge number, right? And the other being mm-hmm. from a study oh, five or six years ago that about 60% of greenhouse gas emissions arise from household consumption. Um, and it's not that they directly arise. It's not like individual consumers are choosing to emit that much, right? Our choices are constrained by the system in which we operate. But at the end of the day, a significant amount of emissions, at least in the United States, tie back to households. And after some iteration, ended up with this idea around how do we kind of create the linkage between those different concepts, with which is where Ivyco came from. Um, so what we've built is this web and mobile application that's designed to help you engage with the climate crisis through your everyday purchases to try to recognize that there is climate impact baked into everything we do today, but to do it in a way that matches the individual's role in sustainability and in the climate world. So there's three big parts to that. Um, first, we help you learn about your climate impacts through your spending by using some open banking technology uh, to analyze your spending pat- patterns and help you understand where in that spending there's climate impact. We're not really doing carbon footprinting. We're doing uh, what we call carbon intensity analysis, which is less on the accounting side and more on the educational engagement side. Okay. Then we take that, we help you round up your spare change using roundups, which uh, have been around for a while as a kind of behavioral economic concept. That spare change you put in the jar when you come home, that can add up to real impact over time. Those funds go to key decarbonization efforts like the Family Forest Carbon Program, uh, as well as a couple other climate activism nonprofits. Uh, we've raised over $2,000 just in spare change, pennies, nickels, dimes, since our inception. Uh, and lots more to go there. Uh, And then finally, we take that action and turn it into further engagement by exposing our users to other places they can get involved in the climate crisis, whether that be podcasts like this, interesting books to read, other organizations that are doing good work, try to just give people more resources through the lens of their own spending that could lead to further action. Got it. And Nate, how does your team with the American Forest Foundation come into play into all this? Yeah, so at the American Forest Foundation, we work with the nation's uh, family forest owners. Um, it's, it's a fact that most people don't know that of our nation's forests, about 39% of them are owned not by the government or by large companies, but by families, individuals, people just like us. There are 11 million people who participate in forest ownership in this country. 
and collectively they own 290 million acres. To, to give you some sense of how big that is, Jeez. imagine the state of California and imagine the state of Texas, put those two states together, that's the size of the land base we're talking about, right? Put it another way, imagine a hopscotch square drawn out with seven squares. If that hopscotch square represents the entire uh, 48, lower 48 states, one of those seven squares are forests owned by families. Jeez. So this group of people uh, have a tremendous impact on all the ecosystem services that we all depend on, one of which is their ability to sequester and store carbon and thus mitigate the effects of climate change. However, it's really challenging to figure out how to get you know 11 million people to manage their land in a, a, a fashion that's consistent with the goal of mitigating climate change. So uh, we began building this program in 2017 that sought to address the barriers those landowners face in implementing climate smart forest management. And basically there's two, right? Number one, uh, they, they don't have the technical knowledge required, right? So most forest owners, you know, they, that's not their primary source of income. That's not the number one thing they worry mm -hmm. about. They've got another job, another profession. Quite often they don't live on their forest. It's where they go to recreate. They have a cabin there. They inherited it. Sometimes they've owned it for generations, but they're not experts. So they, so they need help. They need someone to come and tell them, you know, if you did this and this and this a little bit differently, it would lead to better outcomes. And then number two, um, oftentimes they do need financial assistance because climate smart forestry is essentially long-term forestry, mm -hmm. right? It's just, it's, it's not really different in any main way except in being able to think in terms of 20, 30, 40 years, right? Now, that's fine if you're a government, right? Or if you're a large institution. But if, if you've got to send your kid to college next mm -hmm. year, right? If you all of a sudden got a cancer diagnosis and you don't have insurance, or, you know, to use a more trivial reason, you, you just want to buy that really nice new truck that was advertised. Like you can end up viewing that forest as a bank account and liquidating it. Mm -hmm. So if we can give landowners both the knowledge of, of what's the right thing to do and the finances they need to sort of cover their, their cash flow needs while they're growing their forest, that's a win for the landowner. It's a win for the climate. It's a win for the American public overall. And Ivy Co has been very helpful in that the uh, donations that they provide upfront allow us to pay those landowners that upfront incentive to begin those actions that lead to that uh, climate mitigation. Gotcha. That sounds like a, a really perfect partnership then. Because <laughs> you have both sides of the financial the, and the educational awareness side of it kind of working together. So cool. Um, I was totally unaware, and I'm sure many of my listeners were, that 39% of forests are owned by individuals and families. I mean, I always assumed it was mostly state, local, nationally owned. So yeah, 39%, that's much, much more than I would have guessed. How can we, and I mean that as the collective we, use private forest land to better mitigate climate change through carbon sequestration? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So essentially what a forest is, right? Think, think of it like a garden. When you have a garden, you're, you're not just planting things, letting them grow and hoping everything works out, right? You're tending to that garden. Mm -hmm. And the, what you're going to do is you're going to take out um, those plants that are sort of having difficulty, they're struggling, and they're sucking up resources in order to free up space and resources 
for those plants that are really healthy and vigorous and growing, right? So that in a nutshell is what good forestry is. It's finding the trees that are healthy, vigorous, growing. It's keeping them on the landscape, right? So they can continue to do that. And it's it's harvesting the trees that are kind of getting in their way or maybe not as productive. One misconception of how to maximize carbon sequestration and storage in forests is that the way to do it is to stop harvesting. And the problem with that is if you stop harvesting, then all the things that we use that are made out of wood or wood-based products from paper to the two by fours in your house to a whole bunch of stuff that you wouldn't think of as being a forest product, but is, um, now we have to use fossil fuels to manufacture mm -hmm. substitutes for that. So wood is a renewable resource, right? And if we can grow more wood more efficiently, right? So on a per acre basis, we're growing more. Uh, that means there's going to be more carbon in the forest, but it also means we're going to produce more wood products that substitute for non-renewable materials. And that's kind of the golden circle we're trying to get to. So why is it important to work with landowners to do that? That doesn't happen naturally. Mm -hmm. And that, that reason is just because of the time value of money, right? So if, if we're only looking at a forest from a perspective of what can it bring us in terms of cash for timber harvesting, sometimes we'll harvest the wrong trees or we'll harvest trees before they're really ready to be harvested. And we'll actually reduce the productivity of our forests. And so again, you know, we collectively can provide technical assistance, uh, finances, we can become a little bit more educated uh, about, as consumers about what effective forest management is, about the value of sustainable wood products. All those things together create the conditions for under which family-owned forests can provide a lot of environmental values to all of us. By the way, it's not only carbon. Mm -hmm. It's good wildlife habitat. It's strong rural economies, right? Um, there are a lot of rural jobs that depend on, on wood products. Uh, it's, it's clean water. Um, so much of our nation's drinking water is filtered by private force. So, so all of these values get produced when we have really clear thinking about how to manage our forests to maximize all of these different values they provide. Gotcha. So with ownership of forests, I'm curious if you see any distinct advantages versus disadvantages of protecting forests through private or public ownership. Like what if you were going to give an elevator pitch as to why you think it's better to work with private ownership, what would that be? Yeah, so this is a great question. And I think it's one that people don't ask enough, which is just like, how, how does our basic assumptions about how land is owned and what our relationship to it is, how does mm -hmm. that translate into outcomes? You know, normally we just jump to the outcomes yeah. and we start arguing about those. So I love <laughs> this question. Um, you know, I, I do want to say there's a place for both. Um, it's, if, if you have a really beautiful forest with a lot of public values that include recreation, by the way, and it's something that we want to collectively have access to, you know, that's obviously a place where public ownership provides a huge value mm -hmm. and, and stewarding that as a resource for us collectively. If you want to think about maximizing the values, the outcomes of forests, that's where private ownership becomes really useful, right? Because here's the thing about a public forest. Yeah, the public owns it, but who is the public? Like who, who do you go and knock on the door when you have a complaint or who's held accountable when you know we don't sort of produce the values to the highest level? Mm -hmm. Nobody, right? But a, a privately owned forest, especially one that's owned by a family, there is a person 
who feels a great deal of stewardship responsibility for that and is going to pass it on to their children who they also care deeply about. And they, one thing that every forest owner I've met shares in common, they all want to leave the land better than they found it. Right. And that keeps them up at night. That's how much they care about it. So with private ownership, you do get that sense of individual responsibility from the land management perspective, which is I think really irreplaceable. And then finally, from a, from a carbon perspective, um, Private owners are uh, unencumbered by a lot of the political considerations for how land is managed, mm. and that maybe makes it a little bit easier for them to be nimble and adaptive in terms of how they manage their land in response to these these various – both the effects of climate change, like wildfire, but also the ability to help sort of prevent climate change. Uh, I think the other thing that got me really excited when starting to work with the American Forest Foundation on this, this carbon program – um, was the American Forest Foundation's not, you didn't start with the carbon program. This is fairly new for what you're doing, but you have the key relationships. You've been in the family forest and the private forest ownership space for so long that it makes sense that you're the ones leading this charge into the kind of private forest, uh, bringing them into the carbon market space. Yeah, that's a that's a really great point. And if I could just to add to that, you know, Matt, no one, no forest owner wakes up in the morning and says, you know, my goal today is to sequester more carbon in my forest. Right. Mm -hmm. What do they care about? They care about the health of their land. They care about privacy. They care about beauty. They care about the wildlife that they see every day on their land. Um, do they care about money? Yes. But very few of them are using their woods as their primary source of income. Mm -hmm. But they have property taxes to pay. They have to maintain their road. They have life expenses to cover. So, so you have to figure out how it's not a burden financially to manage their forests in the right way. And if you can do that and you can meet their other objectives, um, you can really create a situation in which these families are, are doing great management and it's producing benefits for all of us. Got it. Yeah, I, I think there's a ton of intrinsic value to forests where, you know, to put it plainly, people just love the woods. It's a place to explore. It's a place to kind of disconnect. And I'm sure that people who own, whether it's their family or just the individual themselves own a forest, they probably feel that feeling times 10. So yeah, that totally makes sense. You're absolutely right about that, by the way. So how can individuals like me who, you know, I, I don't own a forest, but I care a lot about them. How can I get involved using something like IvyCo, and what does that involvement mean for me and for the forests? The number we look at is every $11 that we raise for the Family Forest Carbon Program helps improve the management of an acre of American forest. When you're using the IvyCo app, that's a number that we show you pretty front and center, and that's an acre's uh, about the size of, I think it's four tennis courts, might be bigger than that if you're not familiar with like how, how large an acre is, right? That's a lot of forest land, and that can start having an impact over time, especially when you think about uh, most of our users contribute in that spare change in the realm of 11 to $15 a month, which is less than your streaming service, mm -hmm. right? And you can imagine over the course of a year or two how much that starts adding up and contributing to this uh, Family Forest Carbon Program and all those benefits that Nate was just laying out. Um, so whenever you're using Ivico, your smart roundups are directly uh, going towards that cause. And then that turns into real impact on the ground. Nate. What we really liked about the partnership with Ivico 
is, of course, uh, we have a lot of donors. Donations are very important. That you know, that's wonderful. The thing that's unique about IvyCo is there's this connection between the kind of emissions that are being created in in the course of an individual's life and the mitigation that's being created on forests. Now, again, it's not a carbon footprint thing. Where you know, Brian's not trying to get people to claim carbon neutrality here. But it does introduce sort of a more nuanced way of thinking about our individual responsibility and our connection to these forests, right? That every transaction you make, and I, I should mention here, I am a user as well. So I, I see the little microtransactions on my bank account every day. <laughs> and it's just a reminder, you know, that it, it's not I it's not just these woods are over there and we hope they're good. Like the things that you're doing, the things that you're buying, the way that you live your life it does have an impact on on those woods, even though it's a tiny one. And if we can get everyone to realize that impact and internalize a little bit of the responsibility, that can add up to, to a, a, a big impact overall. I think anything like that, the, the collective is so much stronger than we realize where so many people have that outlook where how can I just one person make a difference? So why would I try? But then if you take the other side and go, I, one person, can't make a difference, but all of us together make a huge, huge impact on whether it's this or climate change or whatever broad, tough-to-tackle topic we're looking at. When we band together, it, the outcome is is great. So, yeah, I think, you know, this sounds like something easy to use that, you know, set it and forget it, and all of a sudden you're making this big impact on forests with everyone who else is using this app. And Matt, just to pick up on that point, mm-hmm. that's the other thing we really liked about Ivyco is they're kind of solving the same problem we are, but on on the consumer side. So similarly, you know, no one family-owned forest, and the typical family-owned forest in the United States is about seventy acres. That's about the average. Mm-hmm. So you know, no one forest is going to have a meaningful impact on climate change, right? Um, but if we can figure out a way, our, our goal is by 2030 to have 20% of those forests, so around 50, 60 million acres, using climate smart forestry, then you begin to have an actually globally significant effect. To be clear, this by itself will not solve climate change or even come close to doing it, but it's one of 200, 300 interventions globally that, that need to happen for us to stay on that 1.5 degree pathway. Similarly, any one person's donation or, you know, they're, oh, well, I'm going to I'm going to make my plane flight carbon neutral, any of that sort of stuff, trivial impact. Mm-hmm. But if we can aggregate consumers and have them all doing that, it adds up really quickly. And then we get into those big. So it was a cool like mirror image of what we're trying to do on the landowner side. One number I love to look at. Right. If 100,000 Americans used Ivy Code to round up just $10 a month. So less than your Netflix subscription. Mm-hmm. Um it would end up adding about a million acres of family forest land to the family forest carbon program per year. Wow. That's about the size of Rhode Island. That's awesome. <laughs> All right. I guess I will get right into my next question then. What role do you see carbon mitigation through forests playing into the greater carbon markets? Uh, it's a great question. So uh, I think a lot of times we, as a environmental community engage in kind of black and white thinking, right? Where we want to say, okay, you know, it's all about planting trees or it's all about forests. Or on the other side, we want to say that's not important at all. The only thing that matters is stopping fossil fuel use, right? Mm -hmm. 
And the truth is, anyone, I invite you, go read the IPCC reports, and they're very clear. You must do both of these things. Yeah. You must. There, there is no scenario in which we maintain, we stay at or under that 1.5 degree target that does not involve both significant and steep reductions in the usage of fossil fuels and the massive global activization of natural climate solutions, including forests. So it's, you know, all of the above options in terms of the crisis of climate change and what role do forests have to play? Forests are our current best technology for removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and storing it in the biosphere. And both of those are really important. It's not just removing, it's also storing, right? We need to protect Mm -hmm. our existing forests and make sure they're well-managed. And we need to restore degraded forests and establish new forests where it makes sense to do so. That entire bucket of natural climate solutions can provide about a third of the needed mitigation during this crucial decade to keep us on track for for Paris, for the 1.5 degree target. Over time, as emissions begin to go down, natural climate solutions, they get less important, right? Both because they saturate, meaning we've we've absorbed all the carbon that we can, and because Mm -hmm. then we're able to make steeper and steeper emissions reductions as technology develops. So it's an important role. It's not the only thing. It's not a silver bullet, but it's also something we can't ignore. I, I hope that I wish there was an easy answer to that question, but that's kind of the nuanced answer. I feel like with any environmental topic, there's no easy answer and it's always kind of, you know, it can't just be this, but it's a major piece of the puzzle. And hey, by the way, this puzzle is the most important thing that we've ever tried to tackle. Right. I think one of the other interesting things to me about the Ivyco Family Forest collaboration, right, is individuals getting involved in the carbon markets is really tough. There's not a lot of good examples of how individuals can engage with carbon markets. And we're trying to provide a model here that maybe is a a good way of doing that by bringing a bunch of individuals together to participate in the carbon market through a program uh, like the Fin Forest Carbon Program. So that's another piece of the puzzle here. Awesome. And on that point, Matt, for those of your listeners who are very sophisticated about carbon markets and are probably wondering like, oh, you know, are, are, what about double counting? Um, we do retire an amount of credits commensurate to the amount that individuals uh, pay um, the Family Forest Carbon Program. So this isn't a situation where, you know, individuals help us start this program and then a company gets to claim the same mitigation. Mm-hmm. We're very clear about making sure that each ton of mitigation we create is counted for one claim one time and then retired. Awesome. All right. So uh, just to kind of take a parallel approach here to something that I'm more familiar with and maybe some of my listeners are, when we talk a lot about wildlife conservation and specifically with endangered species, we'll say that, you know, climate change is heavily impacting them, but their number one threat right now is poaching or habitat loss. So my question is, Relating this to forestry, is deforestation the greatest threat that forests are currently facing? And if so, how does getting involved with Ivy Co. help address this? If not, what is and how does Ivy Co. help address that? Great question. Um, I wish we had another three or four podcasts to answer, yeah. but I'll try and give you the short <laughs> the short answer. So forests are a hyper-local resource. So the answer is going to be different. Mm-hmm. For, for every forest. I'm going to talk about U.S. forests generally here for a second. 
we are lucky in this country. Deforestation is not a huge problem. Uh, where we experience deforestation, mm-hmm. it's very localized. It's usually around um, residential development, particularly in the U.S. Southeast is where it's happening. Um, but it's it's very minor. And actually, uh, we have more forests today than we had 100 years ago, right? And we have 50 straight wow. years of forest net forest growth, meaning that our forests are sequestering and storing more carbon even after all the things that create emissions, harvest, wildfire, conversion, deforestation, so on and so forth. So in the U.S. context, it's not really deforestation. And, and frankly, you know, we don't really experience any sort of existential threat to our forests like you would in some tropical countries, for example. In mm-hmm. the United States, it's more about maximizing the value of the forests we have. Now, there are a lot of uh, exceptions to that. If we go out west, there are existential threats. Wildfires are destroying large portions of our forests in a way that will make it difficult for them to return. Mm-hmm. There, too, the answer is better management, right? How do we get fuels out of our forests so when fire, which is a naturally occurring thing, encounters those forests, it burns them, but it doesn't destroy them, right? Mm-hmm. So the challenge for us as a nation is to figure out how we create an atmosphere where really good, high-quality forest management can happen and produce those outcomes over the long term. Again, to me, the big missing piece is how do we extend our thinking from a quarter, a year, five years, even 10 years to 20 years, 30 years, because at, at that's the scale at which forests are just excellent at performing. If you're, if you're asked them to do something in a five-year or one-year time frame, you're going to end up with trade-offs that you're, you're not going to like in the long run. And for the Ivy Co angle of that, right? We're trying to bring more of exactly what Nate just said to a larger audience. The more of us that understand that and can get engaged in that discussion, the better. That, that sounds great. And we end every single one of our interviews with three fun, hopefully, uh, rapid fire questions. You guys ready? I'm excited. All right. Number one, what is your favorite animal? Penguin? River otter. That's an easy one. The correct answer is river otter. (laughs) All right. Number two, what is something that each of you do to be more sustainable in your own life? That's such a good question. I mean, I I do. So I was an early adopter of uh, driving a Prius. You know, my next vehicle that I buy will be electric. I I do resonate pretty Mm -hmm. highly with like the the vehicle um, route. Awesome. Uh, I've been getting more and more involved with my local food co-ops, resilience and sustainability conversations. Nice. Um, I'm fascinated by regional food ecosystems. So I'm trying to see how we can take a co-op grocery store and make it be more sustainable. So it's been fascinating to get involved in. Yeah, it sounds really, really cool. I feel like we could spend another 30 minutes on just that alone. Oh, for sure. All right. Last question. What is one environmental topic you think my listeners should be more aware of after hearing from you today? I uh, think a lot about how companies in particular make decisions about what to invest in when they're building new factory, new product, et cetera. I'm a product manager by training, right? So this is the world in which I've lived. Um, And trying to put more sustainability concepts into that is actually very hard Mm -hmm. because often these decisions are tight already and have a lot of different factors. And the more we can get smart in the product development in the business world about how to pull sustainability into that, especially without a global carbon price, right? The, The better off we're going to be. And the more we can understand 
and your listeners can understand about how that financing actually works, how that decisioning actually works. Um, I think the more effective we can all be as citizens as part of those conversations. Yeah, I would just say the complexity of the relationships between the economy, the natural world, land management, um, just the the knowledge that these decisions are really difficult. Mm -hmm. And in a world where people are always trying to give you the 10-second soundbite, um, these for to be a responsible citizen, particularly on environmental issues, almost always requires that you dig a lot deeper and you understand the nuances and complexities. And of course, I think my sense is that's the point of your podcast. So thank you for for trying to do that. That's what we go for. It's, uh, the goal is to make everything seem a little bit more digestible for a tough topic. All right. Brian, Nate, thank you both so much for your time. This was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. I hope the listeners learned a lot. If people want to keep up with you or your work, where's the best place to do that? You can check out IvyCo at ivyco.eco, ivyco.eco, or by the time you're hearing this, we're hopefully in your app store and Google Play store with a brand new mobile app. Awesome. And uh, I would encourage everyone to visit the Forest Foundation's website. It's forestfoundation.org. Cool. We will link both of those in the show notes. So if you're listening, go swipe up or swipe down whatever direction and go click on those links. All right, guys, thank you again, and we will talk soon. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. And that'll do it for this episode of TPT. Thanks again to Brian and Nate for their time today, and make sure to hit the websites in your show notes to learn more about IvyCo and the American Forest Foundation. Nick and I are going to be back on Friday for some quick hits to get you into your weekend. Until then, make sure to follow along on our socials at Planet Today Pod for clips from the show and an exclusive quick hit that I'm working on every week. For the Planet Today, I'm Matt Norton. See you on Friday.